Well, church, it's great to see you guys again today. Um, and if you're one of our guests or first time in a long time, uh, we started a new series back in August on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future. We're going to continue in that a little bit today as we're wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles and want to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 7, uh, that's where we're going to be, wrapping things up, starting in verse 13. If you didn't bring it today, I'm going to be putting some of these passages up on the screen so it'll be easy for you to follow along with. But the passage we're going to look at today is going to feel... Um, it's going to feel a little awkward. It's going to feel kind of like the, the weird, awkward DTR, define the relationship conversation you had with your loved ones so long ago. Maybe you remember that from junior high or something like that. You pass a little note and you're kind of anxious to see what box they're going to check a little bit later on coming back to you. you don't, it's that time of ambiguity in your relationship where you don't really know how things stand. I've shared with you guys my story a lot of times of kind of how it went down with Kat. Uh, suffice to say, it did not go very well. I was completely awkward and painful, and I was a speech communication major. I should have been good at communicating. Uh, absolutely froze during that conversation. We sat in that car that day, and, and I managed to get out the words like, I like you. And then literally, I was frozen in silence for the next 15 minutes in the car ride home. It was just one of the most painful and awkward things that, I mean, literally, that's all I could say is, I like you. And um, that's about it. But it was that time in the relationship was just tons of ambiguity. You don't know if it's going re- to be reciprocated or how the whole thing's going to go. And I was terrified and crippled in fear. And, and uh, the reason I say that is because that's going to be kind of the feeling that some of us are going to get from the passage that we're going to look at uh, here today. And if you've been following along in the blog or the series at all, then, and you've read ahead, then you kind of know which passage I'm talking about. This is the famous passage you may have heard referenced a number of times where Jesus is speaking to a bunch of religious people, and he just basically gives them a picture of the end times, and he essentially just says, um, not so fast, my friends. I think that we, we may be pretty confident in a lot of different things, but in the end, I'm going to look at some of you and say, depart from me because I never actually knew you. You know this passage I'm talking about? You've heard this reference before. Anybody else terrified by this passage? I mean, this is the passage that as a kid, and I'm growing up, and I hear a preacher preach about it from time to time, and, and I read about it, and my parents tell me, like, uh, this is the thing that keeps you awake at night, right? Depart from me because I never actually knew you. I mean, this is the thing that kept me coming back, and I mean, it drove my prayer life for years, right? I mean, Lord, I, uh, let me be really, really clear about what I believe. I, I, I was always just terrified. Did I, did I pray the prayer right? Is my faith that genuine faith, or is it counterfeit faith? Right? I, did I do that? Is my faith real? What's going on in me? I, I think I broke records as a kid and, and youth group and stuff, uh, the number of times that I prayed to receive Jesus into my heart, right? You know what I'm talking about? By the way, terrible theology. Jesus doesn't enter your heart. The Holy Spirit does. But um, I, I was that kid that was like every single altar call, every single um, you know, time in church that came through, I'm like, yep, coming down the aisle again, like over and over and over again. I was just like, I'm in. Uh, Jesus, I want to be really, really clear about what I believe. Like, this is a real thing. I believe in you. I'm putting my faith in you. I, 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 this is real. I just in case you forgot, right? In case you forgot, like, this is legit. I'm here. Right? And it just crippled me in fear for so long because it's just not one of those things that you want to take for granted. Like, it's not one of those things that you really want to be wrong about. And so in the passage we're going to look at this morning, Jesus is going to essentially be drawing a line in the sand as he wraps up the Sermon on the Mount. And he's going to essentially do this because he wants us to have clarity about how things are going to go, that none of us would be surprised in the end. And so, if you, again, if you had your Bibles, that's what we're going to jump into today, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Uh, the two questions I want to get at today are, number one, uh, how can you and I know where you really stand with the Lord Jesus Christ? And, uh, and then, is it important, and why is it important that you actually know where you stand? 
And so that's what we're going to be jumping into. Again, if you remember from the past few weeks, again, like I said, Jesus is wrapping up this entire Sermon on the Mount. It's something we've been spending about six weeks in. Um, It's finally coming to a close, but it's this famous sermon where Jesus is essentially speaking to the religious elite at the time, and he's combating religious hypocrisy and a lot of the religious norms of that day. And he's essentially raising the bar of spirituality, raising the bar of what true righteousness actually is in order to say, okay, I know that you guys thought that you were fine. You knew what religious righteousness really was, but, uh, but it's actually a lot higher than you think that it is. Re- righteousness is about more than the things that you do. It's about the things that you feel. It's about the things that you think. It's about your motivations and what's going on honestly inside of your heart. And so everywhere we look in these chapters, he's raising this bar of righteousness, but at the same time, he's also saying, hey, I didn't come to lower the bar and I didn't come to abolish the law. What I came to do is fulfill the law. In other words, you and I are able to pursue this high calling which Jesus presents to us in the Sermon on the Mount from a place of security because he came to uh, fulfill the requirements of that law for you and for me. And so nevertheless, these few chapters, he is lifting it up over and over again, combating religious hypocrisy. And here, starting in verse 13, he's going to wrap it up. This is kind of his summary, last thoughts in his sermon. Here's what he says in verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through that. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets, because they come to you in sheep's clothing. Inwardly, they are ferocious as wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation upon the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house upon the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. And that's how he wraps up the famous Sermon on the Mount. Like that's it. That's his entire summary conclusion right here in the Sermon on the Mount, just four terrifying word pictures. And he says there's two paths and there's two different gates. One's really, really wide and one's narrow. And Wide is the path that leads to destruction and narrow is the path that leads to life, but there's only few people that are actually on that path. There's two kinds of trees. One produces good fruit, the other bad fruit. There's two kinds of prophets and disciples. One is a genuine one. The other is actually a wolf that's dressed in sheep's clothing. And there's two houses, and one's built on a solid foundation made of rock, and the other's built on a foundation of sand. And when the storms come on and rise against it, it just quickly washes away. Point being of the entire thing is that There is an enormous difference between genuine and counterfeit faith, and you and I need to know uh, which camp you're actually in. So the question I want to ask as we get into this passage right here um, is essentially the question of this whole passage, right? Like, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt where you stand with him? Like, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt where you stand with him? And if you do, like, what what are you basing that upon? What are you holding on to, and what are you clinging to uh, for that security? I mean, it's just not one of these questions that we want to let go, 
right? It's not one of these questions that you want to be uh, ambiguous about or uncertain about or anything like that. I mean, this is the, this is the question that we've all got to ask. We'll never forget when I was in, in college, a, a public speaking class that I was in. This is one of the first uh, messages that we kind of talked about. And, and this is the thing that I wanted to confront our class about. It's like, here's what Jesus says about himself. Do you actually believe this? And where do you actually stand in relationship with him? I mean, this isn't the kind of thing that you want to be uncertain about. And this also isn't the kind of thing that you want to be frozen with insecurity if there's nothing for you to be afraid about. I mean, this isn't the kind of thing that you need to be crippled with fear about as I was as a child if there's absolutely nothing to be afraid about. I mean, um, John wrote an entire epistle to this end. Here's what he says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. He says, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, like not only is the answer yes, you can absolutely know that you have eternal life, but, but John wrote an entire book dedicated to the subject matter because that's how important it is that you have security in relationship with him. Like, is that necessary for your relationships to flourish? And I think we get this, right? Like the security is necessary for our relationships to flourish. It's why we go above and beyond with friends and family, people that we love, to let them know that they're secure and that this, this thing isn't falling apart anytime soon. Right, I'll never forget a number of years ago, I was dropping off Caleb uh, to, to spend the week with my parents. We met up in Fairfield. It's kind of the halfway point between Dallas and Houston. And I was driving him there, and my parents were there. And uh, I, I dropped him off that day, and I didn't look at him and be like, hey, buddy, I hope, I hope to see you again sometime. Like, I didn't just be like, hey, I hope I show up a week from now. Right? Like, I, you, your mother and I, were going to be thinking about things and figuring out if we still love you a week from now, Right? I was like, no, 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 go have fun with Nana this, past, this next week, and, and in a week from now, I love you. I'm going to be back in here, and I'm going to be picking you up, right? That's what we do for the people that we love. We go above and beyond making sure that they know how secure this relationship uh, actually is, and that's exactly what's going on here in this passage. Fourteen times, like uh, in John's letter alone, he chooses to reference our relationship with God as father-son type of relationship. Uh, he is our eternal, loving, heavenly father. We are the children that he loves, sons and daughters of the king of all kings. He says the same thing in his gospel, right? John in his gospel says, as many as have received him, to them he's given the right to be called children of God. In chapter 14, verse 18, he says to his disciples, he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come back and get you. In other words, Caleb, don't be afraid. I'm coming back. It's not ambiguous uh, where this whole relationship stands. The rest of the New Testament is the exact same thing. Uh, he uses the same strong language to define the relationship that we have with him. He calls his church uh, his bride. Right? Why doesn't he call us, you know, his girlfriend? Right? Like, why doesn't, why, why doesn't he just call us a friend, an acquaintance? Right? It's, it's the exact same thing going on here. There's an enormous amount of difference between the security that you feel in a dating relationship and the security that you feel in a marriage, right? I don't think we've forgotten this point, right? There's a big difference between the dating and, and, and marriage thing. Like, dating is filled with all kinds of insecurity, like, you're always afraid. You're always kind of putting your best front forward, even if it's not an honest foot forward, in order to get the other person to like you. You remember this? I mean, one of the first dates I ever took Cat on was to the ballet, right? I, 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 not honest, right? <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out there and just say, like, I, I, no one in their right mind does that. I'm not sitting around with the guys one week and kind of going, like, hmm, let's go see Swan Lake, right? It's just not one of these things that we want to do unless I, I'm doing it to put the best foot forward because I'm insecure about this relationship and I kind of want a second date, right? I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Like that's the dating relationship, full of insecurity and full of ambiguity about where our relationship actually stands. Big difference between that and marriage. 
Like marriage, I'm standing before God and my friends and family and everybody else, and I'm covenanting before God that I'm going to love this woman until death do us part for richer or for poorer in sickness and in health. Like that's why he chooses the language that he chooses. Like he does not want you to be afraid and frozen in insecurity. You're a child of God. You're, you're, you're a bride of Christ. Like this is part of this, this whole relationship. He wants you to know that you can actually know because you and I experience the fullness of joy in relationship when security is actually known. And so he says, I'm writing these things to you who believe so that you may know that you have eternal life. Okay, and some people as we talk about this whole issue about can you actually know? And does he want you to feel a, a, the smallest bit of security in this kind of relationship? This is a very, very touchy matter. Like some people, uh, we, we hate this kind of thing. I'll never forget years ago, I was working with an African refugee fellowship of Burundian refugees that were new to Dallas. And I was helping them gather together and get used to new life here in Dallas. And we were gathering as a church and helping them organize and get things uh, together. And um, th this is a major problem for them. They hated it. We started talking about justification by, by, by grace alone through faith alone in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And they hated this idea because fear for them was the way that you control other people, and it was the way that you get people to obey. And so their big fear was, okay, if we, if we let people feel secure in their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, then they're not going to keep obeying. Right, like we need them. We need to threaten and say, okay, if if you're drinking or you become an alcoholic or you become addicted to this, that, and the other, you go this way over here. Like you may not be really saved. You're probably going to be going to hell. And so this is a major, major issue that we felt that we dealt with for a really long time. Martin Luther dealt with the same thing during the Protestant Revolution, Re, uh, Reformation. He went on to call it the damnable doctrine of doubt. But here's how he describes it. He says, yes, you're right. Like being afraid of judgment will indeed produce a surface level obedience. It does. Right? You can be afraid of things, and you're going to obey, and it's going to produce a surface-level bit of obedience. But underneath that thin veneer of obedience will rush a river of fear, of pride, and self-interest. The only way to develop real love for God is to have fear completely removed. And it's exactly what God came to do for us in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because perfect love ultimately casts out fear. And so the question uh, that, that's going to be here in this text is going to be right here in verse 23. Church, like, do you actually know Jesus or do you simply know about him? I mean, that's the question, the, the big, giant, umbrella question that Jesus is going, to, is going to be essentially putting on the table before us. Do you actually know Jesus or do we simply know about him? And I think we get this. There's a major difference between knowing about someone and actually knowing them, right? This is kind of intro to Christianity 101. There's a major difference between these things. Growing up, I was in Houston, and I was a, an enormous Nolan Ryan fan, right? He was the greatest pitcher that ever lived, and one of them, I think. And as an Astros fan, I, I absolutely loved Nolan Ryan. I knew everything there was to know about Nolan Ryan. I knew that he was drafted by the Angels. I knew that he came from Alvin, Texas, and he was somewhat of a local hero. Uh, I knew that he was traded to the Mets. I know that he was then traded to the Astros. I know that it was a major mistake for the Astros to ever let go of him and trade him to the Rangers. I know that it was a massive mistake for Robin Ventura to charge the mound that day because that ended up very, very poorly for him. Uh, I know that he, he holds the record for the number of strikeouts in the Major League Baseball, 5,714 strikeouts, and he beats Randy Johnson by almost 1,000 strikeouts right there. Um, I know that he threw seven no-hitters. I know a lot of different things there is to know about Nolan Ryan. I remember it was probably my freshman, sophomore year in college. I was at a baseball game at TCU um, watching a game and saw Nolan Ryan there. I think he was watching one of his sons play. And I decided to go up and introduce myself to him. And, 
And, of course, I went up there and shook his hand and told him who I was. He was thoroughly unimpressed with me and wanted to quickly get back to the game. And, and I came back to my seat, and I remember that, like, that, that's when I realized that there's a major, major difference between just simply knowing about somebody and actually knowing them. Like, I came back, and I remember thinking, okay, like, to actually know someone, if you really, really knew them, then they're going to know who you are, too. Right? Like there's a big difference between knowing these facts and knowing the allure of who he is and agreeing with all these different facts and statements about who he really is. And then being in this relationship with him where I actually know who he is and he actually knows who I am more than a surface level understanding and knowledge right there. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many are going to say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I'm going to tell them plainly, depart from me because I never actually knew you. Depart from me. I never actually knew you. Church, who's he speaking to in this passage here? I mean, this is, this is a passage that should terrify preachers. This is a passage that should terrify evangelists and healers and people that are engaged in works of ministry. I mean, these are, these are people that, that go and do this uh, on, a, on a frequent basis. These are people that are out there, and uh, they're casting out demons in Christ's name. They're performing many miracles, and Jesus is going to look at them and say, that's fantastic that you're doing all these things in the name of Christianity, but depart from me because I never actually knew you. In other words, when he's talking about two, two paths, two, two, two roads, and two gates that are right here, one's wide and one's narrow, like the wide road is not just the atheistic hedonist who do not care about things of God, they've acknowledged it and said it, they're not even putting on a, they're not even trying to. It's not just those people over there that just want to live for themselves and have decided that uh, just on the, on the forefront, right? Uh, these are religious people. Like, these are religious people that are engaging in religious matters, that are engaged in, in, in things that are attached to the name of Christianity. And what he's going to say is, some of you are doing good things in the name of Christianity, and you're playing the game, and you're, and you're buttoning up the suit and tie, and, you're, and you're, you're doing the whole thing really, really well. And at the end of the day, I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to say, hey, look, depart from me, because I never actually knew you. I never actually knew you right here. It's essentially John Wesley's testimony, right? We, we note John Wesley, founder of Methodism. He was born a preacher's kid, one of, I think, 14 kids, 12 or 14. Uh, that's an enormous amount of kids. I don't know how that happened. but um, I, one of, He was a preacher's kid, grew up in the church. As a young adult, he and his brother Charles were ordained in the ministry as well. They were leading revivals. They were preaching. They were sharing the gospel. And his story is famous. He's, uh, he's on his way from Europe to America one day, and, and uh, it's in the middle of a storm which this seems to happen. This seems to be the setting for a lot of our hymns and a lot of our main leaders. They're coming and they're on a boat. There's a massive storm. They think they're all going to die. And Wesley's looking around at the boat and he sees a group of Moravians that are there and they're not terrified in the least bit. And these Moravians are actually coming together. They're singing praises to the Lord. I mean, they're totally confident and secure in their relationship with him. And meanwhile, John is over here cowering in fear because he has no idea what's going to happen if his life is taken. He writes about it in his journal one day, and he says this. He says, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, oh Lord, who shall convert me? He goes back over from his time in America, and he goes back to Europe. And when he gets back to Europe, he comes under the discipleship of a Moravian minister who goes on and starts teaching him things like justification by grace alone through faith alone and the assurance of salvation and things of this nature. And, and he goes on, and, and that's when things began to really change. He writes about this day that he actually became a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, May 24th, 1738. 
he wrote this uh, journal article, and he was describing how someone was reading a passage from Martin Luther's preface to the Romans, which I swear I'm going to do one day. Martin Luther's preface to the Romans, he had this conversion experience, and here's what he says. He says, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Jesus Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine. And he'd saved me from the law of sin and death. All these years I've been preaching about the saving power of Jesus Christ. But it wasn't until that night that he became my Lord and my Savior. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that there's a lot of people who are going to go out and they're going to do great religious things. And it's going to be all about everyone else out there. And what Wesley's saying here is that there's an enormous difference between knowing about the things of God, knowing the truths that are there in Scripture, and actually personalizing them and saying, you're not just anyone's Savior, but you're my personal Lord and Savior. You're not just anyone's God, you're, you're my God. I'm coming up underneath you. It was my sins that put you upon that cross, and it was my life that you had in mind when you sacrificed yourself for me. And what Wesley's saying here, there's an enormous difference between doing all these things, and all these people can do all these great evangelistic crusades, and you can heal, and you can do all these things, and yet still never actually know the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an enormous difference between uh, those two things. So how do you actually come to, how do you know if you really know him, right? Isn't that the question that he's kind of leading you to here? Like, how do you know if you really know him? I mean, Jesus is going to say right here, verse 21, it's the one who does the will of my father. Okay, well, what's the will of the father, right? John's going to say the will of the father has everything to do with, first of all, coming to him in genuine faith. That's what he's going to say. First John 5, 13, these things I've written to you who have believed, who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, church, like security is for the person who knows him genuinely and wholeheartedly trusts in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. This whole thing is present tense. In the present tense, if all of your hope and confidence for eternity presently and entirely rests fully and completely upon the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a substitute for you, then you and I can know that you have eternal life. A great way to think about this is kind of like this. A number of years ago, I was selling Kat's car. We were seminary students, needed to get rid of it and get a different one, posted it online. I went to go meet a guy in a parking lot one time, and and uh, we were working out this deal. He wanted to negotiate, and I was, I'm like, bro, I've been down this road before. I'm not doing that. So we, we worked out this deal. Come to find out, the guy, was a, um, the guy was a chef at the Old Hickory Steakhouse at the Gaylord Texan. Have you guys ever been there before? Unbelievable steakhouse. One of the best meals, steakhouses in all of Dallas. And I kind of find that out in our conversation. And so I'm like, okay, here's the deal. I'll discount it a little bit right here, but you've got to give me a free dinner for four. Uh, anything that we want at Old Hickory Steakhouse. All right, I was like, I'm like, we're, I'm going to work this angle here a little bit. And so, uh, and so he agreed. He's like, okay, you're, I, I'm in. You, you, you work it out. Come in here. I'm going to hook you up with a free meal. And so that's exactly what we did. Kat was like eight months pregnant, so she was hungry that night. Um, and so like we came, we prepared this. I brought my brother. My brother's like 6'2", about 285, played offensive line in college. Like we were ready to go do this thing. And, and so we go out there that, day, that night, and, and it's, it's a beautiful restaurant. And we go up there, and. And, and the receptionist is like, do you guys have a reservation? And I'm like, yes, I'm Aaron Armstrong. And I was told to actually tell you that I'm, we're with Bob tonight. And, uh, and she looks at it, she's like, oh, you're with Bob tonight. In that way, please follow me. Please follow me, Mr. Armstrong. And so they take us, and we're like, oh, we get a little special treatment here tonight. And so they come and take us to this special little table, and there's, can there's the whole thing all done up just right. And, 
And she sits us down and she says, whatever you want tonight, the, the whole thing's on Bob. You're taken care of. And we come, we sit down. I'm not kidding you. One of the greatest meals I've ever had in my life. Bone-in filet mignon. I did not even know that was an actual thing. Right, like the greatest steak I've ever had in my entire life. I mean, they brought us all individual appetizers. None of these appetizers to share for the whole table. Like we're all getting our own thing. Had bone-in filet mignon. They all brought us our own glasses of uh, water. And like, (laughs) you know, like you had as much of that as one glass was sufficient. And, you know, and so like we we had our own water. We had like brought us our own desserts. Like none of this share one dessert for the entire table. I mean, it was one of the greatest meals I've ever had in my entire life. The end of the night comes and... The waitress comes, and she, uh, and she brings this check. She'd forgotten, evidently. And she comes and brings it to me, and I'm looking at, like, all these numbers aligned to each other, and I'm going, I've never seen a number this big. I, I, can't, even, I can't even count this high. And I was like, ma'am, I was like, you don't understand. Like, we're with Bob. We're with Bob. And she goes, oh, that's right. You're with Bob. My bad. And she took it, and she goes, I, I apologize. Like, everything is on the house. You're, you're completely taken care of tonight. And church, what I'm saying is like when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, like that's what genuine faith looks like. You're looking at this bill that you and I understand we cannot pay this bill. You're looking at this debt that you're owed and you're sitting here kind of saying, I can't pay this bill in and of myself. Like I know my capacities and I I know that there is a bill to be paid here that I cannot do myself and I need to go all in with Jesus. I'm with Jesus. And what the gospel is saying here is that if you come in under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and that bill has been paid on your behalf, I'm going all in with him. I love the way that Leviticus describes this. It gives us a great word picture here. Leviticus 1 verses 3 through 4 describing what needs to take place for sacrifice to be made on your behalf. Here's what it says. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you're to offer a male without defect. Okay, you must present it at the entrance of the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You're to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf in order to make atonement for you. Church, like, what are you doing when you lay your head, your hand on the head of a sacrifice? What you're doing is you're saying, I am placing all of my confidence and security on the head of this sinless lamb right here, that atonement may be made for me. I am placing my faith in this lamb and what God has provided through this sacrificial system right here. I'm going all in right here that atonement may be made for me. And it's the exact same thing that Christ is telling us right here. I love this image because what he's saying here is that atonement needs to be made. I know that something has to be done. And so I am placing my hand on the sinless head of the lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. So that his sacrifice will be accepted on my behalf and atonement will be made for me. Church, where in the world is your hand presently placed today? That's the question essentially that Jesus is kind of getting at right here. Like where does your hand presently lie today? Like what are you presently trusting in? Because what John's saying here and what Jesus is alluding to in this passage is if your hand is presently lying upon the sinless head of the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the earth, then you may walk with him boldly in confidence knowing that your relationship with him is secure. And so first and foremost, that's the thing that he gives us to look to. The second thing that he gives us here in this passage is um, kind of a secondary, s- secondary thing to look to. But the second thing that we look to is, uh, is whether or not there's new evidence or there's evidence of a new life or a new nature that's actually in play in your life. And again, I want to say this, like this is a secondary evidence. Nevertheless, Jesus gives it to us here in this passage. But we know this is a secondary evidence because when you're looking at fruit or evidence of new life, evidence of genuine faith, things of that nature... Like, this is a very, very tricky matter. You can look at different things and say, okay, well, that's love and joy and peace and patience. And Jesus even told us this was a little bit ago. There's a lot of different people doing a lot of religious things, 
that are out there sharing the gospel, that are out there doing things in the name of Christianity. They're doing really, really good things, yet nevertheless, it's not actually genuine. So this is one of these secondary things. Nevertheless, that's exactly what Jesus is alluding to here in verse 16. He says, by their fruit, you're going to recognize them. Right? They're, 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 by their fruit, you're going to recognize them. There's two trees, a good tree and a bad tree. And by their fruit, you're going to see which one's a good tree, which one's a bad tree, which one's approved, which one's not approved. In other words, church, over time, genuine saving faith will produce genuine spiritual fruit. Over time, genuine saving faith will ultimately produce genuine spiritual fruit. And you may not be able to see it or recognize it or even know it immediately as it takes place, but over time, in as much as there is a genuine saving faith inside of you, the Holy Spirit has come and to live inside of you, you're going to see things take place that are going to be different and things will begin to change as you begin to walk with him. I mean, it has to be that way, right? Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. He says, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless you're born of water and the Holy Spirit. In other words, you're born physically as every one of us are born physically, but you're also born again of the Holy Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Paul's going to say the same thing. He's going to say, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have completely passed away, and behold, new things have come. Church, like how in the world can all that happen if, and everything else stay the same? How in the world can you be actually born again, have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, be, be transitioned from death into life, all things passed, the old things passed away, behold, new things have come, if everything is still the same? I mean, Hebrews is going to say, um, he, they're going to write a whole chapter in chapter 11 dedicated to what real faith is and to what real faith does. And the author of Hebrews is going to say, genuine faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction about things unseen. It's the assurance of things hoped for, and it's a deep-seated conviction about the things unseen. In other words, there's a big difference between genuine faith and counterfeit faith. There's a big difference between simply acknowledging certain things are true or agreeing with certain things over here. Uh, it is an all-in all conviction of the heart, soul, mind, and strength about who Jesus is and everything that he came to do. The best way to describe this, I think, is probably like, like you're going repelling. I've told you this a little while ago, but uh, any of you guys ever been repelling before? It's a lot of fun. I remember the first time I went did it during high school, we were out at Enchanted Rock. Uh, great place to go, mountain climbing, hiking, camping, the whole thing. And we were out there with the youth group, and I remember being terrified this whole time. Uh, we were climbing to the top of this rock. I mean, you finally get up to the top, and you're looking out, and you're kind of going, oh, my gosh, I can actually see my house from here. We're in Austin, and I can see my house in Houston. We're that high up. And then you look down, and you're kind of going, okay, I can... I can see a, a number of different things that are able to kill me if these ropes were to break, right? And you're kind of going, this is terrifying. I've got to walk to the edge of this cliff, and I've got to jump over this thing. And, and of course, if you're going to actually go repelling, that's what you have to do. You've got you to rope up, and you've got to tie into the different harnesses that are there. And eventually, you've got to get to the edge of the cliff, and you've got to back up. And you've got to eventually just jump. And you know that when you go repelling, you can't continue holding on to the ropes trying to save yourself. You know that. You have to let go. If you try to hold on to the ropes and jump back, you're going to swing back into the rock, and you're going to hurt yourself. Like when you go repelling, you've got to get to the edge of the cliff, and you've got to lean fully and completely back and let those ropes and that harness actually catch you, and then you're going to be able to go down uh, horizontal or uh, perpendicular, I guess, to the, to the cliff that you're, you're paralleling or that you're repelling down. Church, let me ask you this question. Like, like which one 
Which one is an example of genuine faith? Is it the person who's down at the bottom kind of going, like, I know everything there is to know about these ropes. I know where they were born. I know, where, I know how they were made. I know what they're made of. I know the details about them. I can even tell you the Greek word for rope, right? Or is it the person who's willing to put them on and strap them in and get to the edge of the cliff and jump? I mean, what Jesus is saying here is there's a major, major difference between genuine and counterfeit faith. I mean, it's why James is going to say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'm going to show you my faith by my works. In other words, you know the whole dilemma. You know the whole conversation. I've got works. I've got faith. You know the extremes, and James is saying, okay, you've got works, or I've got, you've got faith. I've got works. I'm going to show you my faith by my works. I mean, that's what, that's what he's saying here, and again, uh, he's, he's saying that n- like nobody's saved by their works, but genuine saving faith, like over time, it's going to go to work. I mean, eventually, if you've actually been born again and the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, then eventually you're going to notice that something's different about the way that you live. Eventually, at some point in time, if the Spirit of God lives inside of you, then his fruit is going to be seen. You're going to see greater amounts of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. I mean, at some point in time, you're going to stop seeing churches as this chore that you need to be at on Sunday morning. You're going to start seeing it. You're going to wake up Sunday morning. You're going to say, I want to be there, and I want to worship the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. I want to be with this family. I actually want to start serving. I actually want to give and contribute to the kingdom of God. I actually want to go out on four Sunday evangelism or in the mission field or to my workplace or to my neighborhood, and I want to share the gospel with other people. Like, eventually, you're going to start seeing things take place in your life that are evidence of the renewed life that's actually true Uh, of you. If you've been born again, eventually at some point in time, you're going to notice that you're actually born again, and you're going to start seeing some sort of victory over sin. And as I say that, I want you to hear me here. Like, we're not saying that you're going to have a perfect faith. And we're not saying that you're never going to be tripped up. And we're not saying that you're going to be perfectly sanctified immediately. And there's never going to be difficulty. There's never going to be tension. There's never going to be wrestling or anything of that nature. I mean, the Bible's clear about this. First John 1 John 1.10. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. We're not talking about sinless perfectionism. Right? Like, he's going to say this again. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Right? We're not talking about sinless perfectionism here. Nevertheless, inasmuch as you've been born again and the Spirit lives in you, you've come to the Lord Jesus Christ and it's a genuine saving faith, then over time you're going to notice that things are going to look a little bit different. I love the way that Proverbs talks about this. Proverbs 24, 16. He simply says, the righteous man falls seven times and he rises again. The righteous man falls seven times, but he rises again. Seven times is a lot of times. Seven times in Scripture is the number of completion. In other words, what he's saying here is that this person just keeps falling over and over and over again. Anybody else here kind of a klutz? Right? Essentially, that's what he's saying. You you fall one time, it's kind of funny. People laugh maybe a little bit. You get up, it's no big deal. You keep falling over and over again. They're going to start filming it, putting it on YouTube, and it's going to go viral. Right? If you're falling constantly over and over and over and over again, like your friends are going to call the doctor because something's not right. Right? And what Proverbs here is saying is that righteous people, they fall so much that sometimes it seems like they can actually barely walk. But here it is, like, because they've been made righteous by God, they keep getting back up over and over and over again. They continue to come to the throne room of God, and they continue to repent of the things that they've done. They respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
and they say, Father, I want to hand this over to you again and again and again, and they keep getting back up over and over and over again because of the indwelling Holy Spirit that lives inside of them. Church, like what evidence is there that there's a new nature in play? Like what evidence can you see in your own life? I mean, you look back to that time, maybe you know the date of your conversion, whatever that thing looked like. Maybe, you, maybe you've been walking with the Lord for a long time. Like what evidence is there of a new nature that's in play? And where is your hand presently resting today? Because evidence is this, evidence is one of these secondary things that we look at. You want security today. Where is your hand presently resting today? I mean, church, like Jesus writes these things and he has these difficult conversations. He wraps up his famous Sermon on the Mount with this like heavy, heavy thing. But it's meant to, it's meant to communicate love. He wants you to have clarity and he wants you to know so that you don't get to the end and you're all shocked and surprised. And you look at him and you say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these different kinds of things? And he looks at you and he simply says, depart from me. I, I, I never knew you. You tried to work your way. You tried to earn your way. You tried to do a lot of different things. But we never actually knew each other. Church, there's a lot at stake in this passage right here. Never forget during Revive Texas a couple years ago, one of the most influential and probably meaningful conversations I had with somebody was out in McKinney Square. I was out there with a group of people. Uh, I was out with Raven Atchison, and we were sharing with a bunch of people out in McKinney Square. And um, if you weren't out there, we kind of we go out into the community, we pray with people, um, we'd hand them these Bibles that were tabbed, we'd have them just read simple verses together, and we'd talk about it together. It was incredible. Loved it. A lot of people came to faith during that time. But we went out to McKinney Square, and I met this guy, and he was with this girl, and um, I prayed with him, and he was very sober, and he was very uh, reflective. He was asking, he was very curious. He actually wanted to stop and engage and have this conversation. And I get done praying with him, and I, I hand him this Bible, and I kind of show him it a little bit, and have him read a couple of these verses, and we get a couple verses into it, Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Uh, free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I felt like I just needed to pause and hit stop on this conversation. And I kind of stopped him and I asked him this question. I just said, hey, I was like, have you ever heard these verses before? And he's like, yeah, I've heard them before. He goes, it's, it's been a really, really long time. I've been a little bit foggy on some of these things. He goes, he goes I, I, I go to church from time to time, but it's been a little while. And truth be told, I've, I've just got issues. He goes, I've just got issues. And I was like, okay, well, let me ask you this question. I was like, if you were to appear before God today and he were to say, why should I approve of you today? How would you answer that question? And he goes, well, very simply, I guess, I would say you shouldn't approve of me today. There's nothing in and of myself that should be approved before a holy God, which is exactly why I've gone all in with Jesus. And he goes, I, the Bible actually says that, the Bible says that there's nothing I can do to earn my salvation. And and that if I've placed my faith in him and it's a genuine faith that, 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 that I'm going to be okay and that I'm going to actually be with him. And so like, there's no reason in the world that God should ever approve of me except for the fact that Christ has forgiven my sin and he's granted me eternal life. And I remember looking at him kind of going, I go, I looked at him, I go, what? And this is not the conversation that I expected to have with him. It was not the response that I ever expected to, to hear from him. And I just said, I was like, dude, are, do you really believe that right now? And he's like, yeah. He's like, I am all, he's like, I am, my only hope is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I said, bro, if you believe that right now, and you've given your life fully to him, you are fully leaning on the cross of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, 
then there's no reason in the world for you to be hiding in fear. There's no reason in the world for you to be running from the church and hiding in shame. You've been taken care of, and you can know that you have eternal life. The Word of God says that you've been given the right to be called a child of God. You've been grafted into his family. You've been called his bride as a part of the local church and as a part of the universal church. Like, your relationship with him is beautiful and it's secure, and there's no reason in the world that you need to be running from him and hiding from him in shame. And church, that relationship, that, that, that conversation that we had that day, that was not a first-time proclamation of faith, but it was exactly the conversation he needed to start walking with the Lord Jesus Christ in confidence for the very first time. I mean, he absolutely lit up that day when he realized the relationship that was already available for him, that had been accomplished for him in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the reason I just wanted to share that today is because, like, some of us are there. Right? Some of us are there, and we kind of go through this thing, and we allow shame to, to continue keeping us at a distance, and we allow ourselves to continue running, continue kind of thinking, okay, there's no way that he's ever going to prove me. There's no way that Christ's life, death, and resurrection is sufficient for God's approval for me for all of eternity. And for some of us, we are running from him, and we are hiding from him in shame. We're kind of like I was when I was a child, and I was just afraid all the time, saying, God, here I am again. Save me again. I don't know if it's legit. I don't know if it's real. I don't know what you actually think of me, but, but God, would you come and save me? And you're coming over and over and over again. And church, if that's you, then he wants you to know that you can know. He wants you to know that you don't need to be insecure. You don't need to be hiding in shame. You don't need to be running from him all the time. He wants you to stop living in fear and boldly live by faith in the security that he's provided for you. Others of us are kind of coming in here today, and we may be a part of that religious crowd. And you may be naively over-optimistic in where you stand with him. And this is one of these passages that's just good for us to come back to over and over again. And to be reminded of exactly what God has said is true here. And some of us are sitting here kind of, kind, of, kind of like Wesley was back in the day. and Maybe you were born in the church. Maybe you prayed a prayer a long time ago. And, and you're looking around and you're kind of going, like, I, I, do, I do the religious game. Like, I know it really, really well. I know the language. I've agreed with a lot of different things. But something in your soul is kind of saying, okay, it's just not exactly right. Maybe you're kind of like Wesley. And you're saying, I've done all these different religious things. I've prayed the prayer. I've done these different kinds of deals. But at the end of the day, like, I've never actually trusted that he is my Savior. I've agreed with a number of different facts. I've acknowledged a few things that are true. But I've never come to him and said, Lord, I'm laying down my life. It was my sin that put you upon the cross. It was your, I need your blood to cover my personal sin. Father, would you come? Would you wash me clean? Would you make me new? Would you give me new life? Would you make me be born again? I'm putting my faith totally and completely in you, Lord Jesus Christ, for the salvation of my soul. And for some of us, you're right there. And you need this sobering line in the sand kind of a moment to say, you know what, here's exactly where I'm placing my hand today. Here is exactly where I'm placing my hand today.